The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How are you guys doing? Good. I'm pinch hitting tonight. Uh, Jeff and Sam were at an Acts 29 gathering, and uh, they had hoped to be able to make it back uh, yesterday. But some of the training was so valuable that they decided they would hang out for a couple more of the, the sessions. There was a worship leader, a breakout session, and some just really good, solid equipping that was going on. And so they asked me to fill in for tonight. It's uh, my, my joy, my pleasure to be here. The kids tonight are being taken care of by Francis Chan. They'll, they'll be, uh, he's over there if you want to go and meet him. He, no, I'm joking. It's a video. Uh, <clears throat> No, it's, it's going to be a, a great night for them as well, and I'm happy to be with you in the Word of God. So grab your Bibles, if you would, and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and that's where we're going to be tonight. As you do that, let's prepare our hearts and come to the Lord. Father, The truth of the matter is, Lord, over the course of our lives, we will take in and probably already have taken in thousands of Bible studies. We will hear your word talked about on the radio and from preachers who are men like myself. We will have your word discussed in conversations and and all of that is well and good. It, it's wonderful. But what makes our time here precious, Lord, is when you, by the Holy Spirit, awaken our senses to hear your voice. When you bring to us the rhema word, that word that is for this moment, it's, it's the manna for this minute. And Lord, I have no control over how you apply it to the lives and to the hearts of your people. I recognize I can proclaim the things that you have said, the things that you have written down, but you, God, are the one who makes it alive to your people. So God, give us soft hearts. Give us tilled soil, ready to receive the implanted word. And then, God, guard and protect that word that you plant in our hearts, that it might not be robbed away by the enemy and the birds of the air, that it might not be crushed out by trials and adversity and burned away, that it might not be trampled and uncared for. God, give us soft hearts that grow and bear fruit as a result of our time together. Shape us, mold us, and use this for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. When you think about life and your experience with the Lord, some of you have maybe been with the Lord for a long time, others of you maybe not quite as long, but when you think back, and you look back to whatever your track record is, what seasons have you done the most growing? When is it that you have been the most exercised in your faith? The most challenged to rely upon the promises of God? You know, as a culture, we have gotten really good at trying to escape all forms of pain all forms of adversity. Um, we don't even like to wait in lines anymore. Matter of fact, I've got an app on my phone that uh, tells me how long of a wait it's going to be at the place I get my hair cut. And I can actually check in remotely so that I don't have to sit in the lobby and wait for a long time. I can just show up and get my you know, $12 haircut uh, at, at the time that I want. Because I don't want to have to wait. You know, I, I, it's funny. Waiting is kind of a, a perspective thing. It's very subjective. How long something actually takes uh, for us to 
to get what we want or to get what we desire. I can remember in Cave Junction, um, I basically had absolute freedom of the roads. I never had to wait for traffic whatsoever. And, and I remember after living there for a, about eight years, there was one time where there was a little bit of road construction on 199 where my, the, road, the street that I lived on teed in with the highway. And so cars were backed up and I had to wait probably three minutes. And I'm like, what the heck is going on around here? It's like, jeez, it's like been three minutes What's happening, right? And now, you know, if you, if you dare to get stuck in between, um, you know, the mall and Costco at about 5 o'clock, it could be a 20-minute project to go, you know, a mile or two. It's funny how our perspective can shift over time and how we can actually lose perspective as to how beneficial adversity And waiting and patience really is for us. As a culture, we have rejected that, but the Word of God constantly is reminding us to what? To embrace it. Don't think it's strange, your brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. Don't you know what those trials are producing in you? They're building in you character, hope. There's a whole list of things that are happening through adversity, through difficulty. And yet often, whether it be the philosophies of the world or whether it be our own hearts or whether it be the lies of the enemy, those very self-same trials that we go through end up being flipped around on their head and we, we hold on to them as though these are reasons to not Trust God. The very thing that gives us opportunity to see that God is faithful, to wait and see character being shaped in us is the very thing that we avoid and we go, because I'm suffering, God is not trustworthy. I shouldn't have to wait for him or persevere or grow in depth. Tonight, This chapter is all about lessons in lament. Things that we learn through the difficulty of life. Things that we we gain through some of life's most difficult event. So lessons in lament. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Let's pick it up in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. This first section here, verses 1 through 4, teaches three important lessons about grief. So this section, 1 through 4, could be titled, Lessons from Grief. Lessons from grief. In the first verse here, he says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Now, it's odd how the two of those are coupled together. A good name and death being better than birth. What's going on there? Well, here's what I think he's saying. When he talks about precious ointment, A good name being better than precious ointment. When you think about a good name, it speaks of the whole of a person's character. That is, how you are known as a person. What the assessment is of your life. Your reputation. Your value as an individual. And it's at the end of your life. It's at the day of your death. 
that that really is revealed. You know, in those days, um, they didn't have a whole lot of showers, so you bathed, you know, whenever you were around water. If it wasn't too cold, you know, sometimes you would go all winter long and say, you know, no thanks to the shower, I don't want to get chilled. I'd rather, I'd rather just put on a little more ointment. Right? It's very similar to Cave Junction. <laughs> it's just a little more patchouli and everything's going to be just fine. No, it's not. Right? They don't make patchouli strong enough to cover up what you're brewing. But the idea is that, you know, very precious ointment, stuff that smelled really good, was worth a lot of money. It was a high-value item. And he says, a good name is better to be desired than precious ointment, than this high-valued item. Because if you stink, <laughs> you stink. It's better not to stink, right? A good name is better than stinking. That's really what he's saying there. And then he goes on to say, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, when you think of it, how much do you know about a, a baby's character? When a baby's born, you know, you see this cute little bundle of joy and you go, oh man, it's so precious and so cute. And you're holding them, you're rocking them. And what do you know about the kind of person they will become? Nothing. You could be holding the next psychopath. In their twos, they're really going to test that theory. Right? It's quite possible you'll be holding the next psychopath, but, but at the end of a life, you really know what you have. Don't you? So lesson from grief, number one. Grief reveals the value of a life. Grief reveals the value of a life. I think no better example of this, mo mostly because we have such a, a large body of writings from him in the scriptures, is, is a guy that we know by Paul, originally called Saul of Tarsus. How much would we really know about the Lord apart from the work and the writings that God has preserved for us through Paul. That's an incredible body of work. When we see Paul writing about his own life, he, he describes it very interestingly for us. If you, if you turn real quickly over to the book of Philippians, the, the book that we're studying on Sunday, go to chapter 3. This is Paul sort of writing about his life. Chapter 3, verse 3 of the book of Philippians. For we, talking about Christians, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh or the lineage or, you know, being a part of Israel by descent. We don't put any confidence in that. Rather, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have even more. Why, well, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of one of the favorite tribes, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, as it relates to the law, the covenant that God had made with his people, I was a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. So he gives his pedigree here. He says, yeah, okay, there's people who boast about their flesh, right? They boast about their lineage. Where did you come from? What's the worth or the value of your life? He says, oh, oh I, you know, I could boast about those things. I totally could. I mean, am I from the, the house of Israel? Absolutely. One of the most favorite tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. Circumcised on the eighth day. I wasn't grafted in later. You know, my family was faithful. Matter of fact, I joined the most religious, strictest group of that time, the Pharisees. 
As it concerns the law, nobody was more zealous than me to the point where I was even killing Christians. Now check this out. Notice what he says next. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or that I am somehow already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those who are mature think this way. He says, okay, what do I put my value in? Where, where do I get my sense of worth? Is it, is it my lineage? Is it my religious discipline? Is it how strict I am or how zealous I am from God? What, where is my source of worth, my source of value? He says it, it comes from one place. All the other sources that everybody else uses, that the world uses to assess their worth or value, the value of their lives. He says, I count that stuff but rubbish or dung. He actually uses an impolite word for dung. And in the middle of that, he says, I left all of that dung behind. Why? Why? So that I could obtain my worth, my value, my sense of righteousness, my sense of value as a person from Jesus, from him alone. It's from him that I obtain my sense of worth, my sense of value. And he says, this is the one thing that I do in life. I, I, I'm like running in this race. Think of the, you know, what's the 80s movies? Right? He's running, leaning in. There's the ribbon, right? He's, wants to, he's got his nose far forward. Chest out. He's going to be the one that breaks the ribbon first. He's running. And one thing he's doing, he's leaving everything else that he thought gave him value behind. He's leaving it all behind. And pressing in for the mark of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. That is where he gets, gets his sense of worth. That is where he gets his sense of value. Let's flip over then. This is, this is not the end of Paul's life. Let's flip over to a little snapshot that we get of the end of his life. 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you just flip over a few pages to the book of 2 Timothy, moving towards Revelation, but not very far. It's like a 16th of your Bible. <laughs> chapter 4. Beginning in verse 6, Paul is writing his final words, penning his final words to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he says this in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. And I have finished the race. I have kept, for, kept the faith. And henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, which the Lord, excuse me, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have long loved his appearing. When Paul gets to the end of his life 
at this very final stage, he says one thing. He says, man, I fought with everything I had, left it all in the ring. I have fought the good fight. I have ran the race. I have come to the finish of my time, and I know what's waiting for me. I know what's on the other side. Listen, one of the biggest lessons from grief, from the end of life, from the sorrow that comes with death, is that grief reveals the true value of a life. It reveals the true value of a life. Many of you guys know that this last fall, uh, my, my father passed away. And, you know, it was kind of one of those surreal moments. I'm sure many of you guys have gone through very similar events. And, uh, and, and I got a call at the office. It was my wife. She's crying. You know, she'd barely keep herself together. And so, you know, there's that awkward pause of like, okay, what's happening, <laughs> Right? And then she says, I'm really sorry, babe. I'm really sorry. Your dad, your dad has died. And, um, and I knew something was up. I had missed a couple of phone calls from extended family. So um, I, I dropped what I was doing, ran out to Murphy where my parents live. And when I show up there, of course, the, the paramedics have left. They've done their thing. But my dad's body is still there. And, and we're waiting for the funeral home to, to show up. And I'm in this house, you know, um, a house that, um, and a piece of property that is attached to a big chunk of my childhood. And around me are things that belong to my dad. And, and there laying in the bed is the shell of my dad, his body laying there lifeless. And all of a sudden, I found myself overwhelmed with the realization of what I am losing in that moment. What is really departing from me? You see, the worth or the value of my dad is not wrapped up in the things that he possessed. Matter of fact, there's, there's things that I would love to have from my dad. I, I could think of guns that we used to shoot when I was a kid and um, activities that we used to share, and I would love to have those things, not because those things are valuable, it's not the value. I'd never sell them. I'd never sell them. But because they're attached to that which is most precious, they're attached to him. You see, a good name is revealed on the day of death. It's revealed in that final moment where you go, what will be lost with this person? Well, if I keep on like this, we're going to have a repeat of the previous sermons, which I got sharply rebuked for. <laughs> I'm going to redeem myself, I promise. Lessons from grief. Second lesson. Grief reminds us not, of, not only of the value of a life, but verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Grief also reminds us of the meaning of life. The meaning of life. In Luke 13, you don't have to turn there, I'll turn there for you. In Luke 13, some people come to try and trick Jesus. In verse 1 of chapter 13, says this, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them because they suffered, or excuse me, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you, do you think that those were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here in this story, 
people come to him with sort of current news. The current news goes like this. Hey, did you hear about, did you hear about Pilate? I mean, what do we do with these people, right? They're, they're trying to figure out like, what category is Jesus going to put the people in whose lives were, were sacrificed and mingled with pig's blood, which is to the Jews a very abhorrent thing, right? What happens to their souls? And Jesus, he, he, he turns from sort of the current news controversy to the heart of the issue. He says, well, so we're at this moment where we're talking about the death of an individual and he says, um, what, what do you think? Do you think these guys were worse sinners than anybody else? Probably not. But can I tell you something? Unless you repent, that concept you hold in your head about you know, the worthlessness of their life, it's going to be you. When you think about how meaningless that bloodshed was to you, that's your life. That's your life, unless you repent. He says, oh, what about this? There's another current news story. I'll bring this one up. The, the, the Tower of Siloam was being built, and, and apparently things got a little wobbly, and the tower fell over and killed a bunch of people. What do you think? You think these guys were worse? This was somehow the judgment of God on these guys? Was, was, was that it? No, that's not it. Let me tell you something. Unless you repent, the same meaningless tragedy of a wasted life, a life thrown away, a life gone, will happen to you. See, death reminds us that life has meaning, that has value, that has a purpose. Its purpose is found in God and nowhere else. The guys at, at, at Pilate's court or the ones who were killed by the Tower of Siloam, did their lives somehow um, match up to their demise? Was, it, was there something in their demise, where, in, in their death, that you would go, oh, it was totally worth it the way that they lived? I mean, their whole life leading up to this moment, this is the perfect ending to such a wonderful life. No, everybody in there, we all look at it. We don't even have to know the people. And we look at it and go, how tragic, how meaningless. And Jesus says, hey, listen, the only thing that gives your life any meaning whatsoever, the only way that your life will have any redemptive value whatsoever, if it's found in me, unless you turn to me, all that you have lived serves no purpose whatsoever. It's all gone. So grief reminds us of the meaning of life. Thirdly, back to Ecclesiastes 7, grief cleanses the soul. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness, by the sadness of faith, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Have you ever met somebody who buries a grief? Something tragic happens. They, they, don't, they don't know what to do with it. I, as, as a part of my role as a pastor in this church, I encounter people all the time who traumatic things, awful, horrible, horrific things have happened in their lives. And when they don't know how to take their heart to God, when they don't know how, how to let themselves grieve, they just lock that stuff up. It is, it, it's, like, it's like toxic waste in a decaying barrel. It just starts to leak out into other areas of life. It continues to ruin current relationships. It continues to ruin their lives in a whole multitude of ways. Listen, it is good for us to embrace grief. It is good for us to look at loss and go, gosh, that hurts. That, that really sucks. This whole chapter in life, I don't even have a good file for that. It just is painful. 
It's good for us to sit with that and realize it is okay to feel the sorrow because that is a part of how God purges our hearts and cleanses us. If we don't let it happen, more sorrow is destined to follow. So he says, sorrow is better than laughter. Isn't it a great irony that some of the greatest comedians of our age have died such horrific deaths, such sad deaths? I mean, we've got Chris Farley, John Candy, the Belushi brother. We've got uh, Robin Williams. I mean, just think through that list of names. You go, gosh, so happy on the outside. Something was eating away at their hearts. As a matter of fact, all that laughter was just a thin cover for a whole lot of brokenness. It's good for us to feel. It's good to have hearts that are in touch with the reality and the weight of the broken world that we live in. I mean, who better, of course, is our example than Jesus? <laughs> there he is at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. In just a few moments, Jesus is going to say, Lazarus, come forth. Just a few minutes. Does he know what he's going to do? Does he know? Yeah. He absolutely knows. And yet he stands at the tomb of his friend. Shortest verse in the Bible. We all know it. And he wept. <laughs> there he sits on a hillside overlooking the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, and, and, and you think about Jesus. He's, he's there. Maybe he's sitting in the dirt. There's, there's sepulchers off to the left-hand side. Maybe he's by the, the Mount of Olives, looking back at the gate beautiful and the city that he loves, the people that he loves. And he's there, and he's looking, and he knows that they are going to reject him. He knows that the crucifixion is coming. And he also knows that because of the crucifixion, redemption it's going to happen. And the gospel will be opened up to the whole of the world. And Satan will be de defeated. And the Holy Spirit will be given in a fresh way. All of this is about to happen. And yet he sits on the hillside. Think about him. Face buried into his hands. Can you see the Savior? Shoulders bouncing as he sobs. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. <laughs> How many times I would have gathered you. I didn't want this pain for you. Their pain in his heart. And he just lets it flow freely. His manhood wasn't on the line. He wasn't ashamed to have it recorded. He wasn't embarrassed for it to be there. He wept. There he was in the garden of Gethsemane on his hands and knees in such soul anguish and anxiety that he's sweating drops of blood and weeping so much so that God has to send, according to the Gospel of Matthew, an angel to be his comforter. Can you see that scene? Can you see the Savior bent over in the garden, head and face laying down and bloodied on the lap of an angel as maybe it's Michael, the archangel, the, the captain of the Lord's hosts, who is wiping away the blood from the Savior's face and saying, it's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. There's no shame in grieving. It's good for the soul. So, lessons in grief. Grief reveals the value of life. It reveals the meaning of life. And grief cleanses the soul. Verses 5 through 7. This one we could title, Lessons from Hardship. 
Lessons from hardship. Verse 5. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Lessons from hardship. In verse 4, or excuse me, in verse 5, it's, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Who likes to be rebuked? Anybody like that? Oh, and don't you just love it when somebody calls you out? Don't you just love it when you, somebody's like, hey, you're an idiot. You don't know what the heck you're doing. Or, hey, you're being a jerk. Why don't you knock it off? That never feels good, right? Hebrews 12 puts it this way. It says that whenever God brings discipline into our lives, it's never pleasant at first. Whenever he disciplines us, it's not something that we're like, yay, that was awesome. Praise the Lord for that whooping I got. We don't do that, right? No, we don't. But he says afterwards... It yields in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been corrected by it. Okay, nobody likes to be rebuked. What we would love is to sing songs. What we love is to be in a house of fools pretending like everything's okay. Nothing's wrong with me. But I'll tell you, man, embrace a good rebuke. Embrace it. One of the most changing moments in my life, actually, as a young man, um, I'm starting a church, I'm, I don't know anything. I'm like 20, 22 years old, 21 years old, and I gave this teaching. It was a teaching that I basically plagiarized from John Corson, and I'm, I'm there, and I, and I teach this, this you know, outline that is something that he taught me, and I'm like, this is the, this is the gospel truth, right? And um, and. This brother who had, who had put me in his house and it had just been a wonderful blessing in my life shows up, my, up at my house the next day. He's like, hey, can I, can I have some, t- some of your time? I'm like, sure, you bet. And he says, I came to talk to you about the teaching. And I'm expecting like, oh, praise the Lord, brother. Thank you for your wise mouth and your understanding. You know, I'm, that's what I'm expecting. So I sit down with my cup of coffee and I'm, yeah, sit down, Wade, let's talk, you know. And I'm sitting there and just ready. He's like, that was the, probably the, one of the worst teachings I've ever heard. I'm like, what? He's like, it, it's not that you're not entertaining. I mean, you can tell a good story. That's not the problem. The problem is it wasn't based in the word of God. You just sat up there for 45 minutes. Okay, it was like an hour and 20 and spouted your opinions. I didn't come to hear your opinions. I came to hear the word of God. And I'm like, well, uh, 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 and I'm trying to make excuses. The more I made excuses, the more I sound like an idiot. Because I'm basically copying somebody else's work. I hadn't done the work myself. I hadn't studied it myself. <laughs> I'll tell you what happened next Sunday. I had every I dotted Every T crossed. I wanted to make sure everything I said was coming from the word of God and I knew why I was saying it. One of the best moments of my life as a young man. Absolutely transformed me as a teacher. How good it is for us to receive a rebuke. It's not pleasant in the moment, but yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In verse 6, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. In our lessons from hardship section here, hardship changes us when we receive a rebuke, right? We are shaped by it. But second of all, hardship forms character, not temporary sadness, or temporary happiness, excuse me. Not temporary happiness, So it's like this. You've got a pot. It's on an open fire. Underneath, you stuff the fire with a bunch of thorns, which they make all kinds of noise. They're crackle, 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 crackle. But how much heat are they producing? How long does it last? How long are the coals there from thorns? Not very long at all. Burns real hot, but then burns out real quick. Do you get to boil your water? Maybe, if you're lucky. 
but it's not easy. Lots of noise, lots of activity, but not much substance. Listen, hardship forms character, not temporary ha happiness. It shapes who we are, not how we act. Hardship brings us to the crisis of making decisions about where we put our trust or how faithful we will be. Hardship makes us make choices that are character-forming choices. They don't burn out quickly. Today, I sat um, in, a, in a Skype uh, or FaceTime premarital counseling session with some young people that were part of my youth group at Cape Junction. We sat and we talked about the covenant of marriage. <laughs> you know, I said, tell me what love is. And they're like, well, it's this feeling that I get when I'm with her, like I can't be without her. I'm like, okay, all of that is good. I'm not making fun of them. That is, they genuinely feel that way. But I'm like, you got to have something more in depth than that. Because I'll tell you, gravity is going to win the battle, right? <laughs> I mean, that whole thing about Murphy's Law, that's a real deal, right? Sooner or later, that happy feeling, it's going away. And if you don't have something with substance, something that's based upon the grit, the character that it takes to say, I will love you in sickness or in health, for richer or for poor, for better or for worse, if you don't have the character that that takes, I'm telling you, life is going to wipe you out. It takes grit. It takes character. And see, hardship forms in us character that lasts, not happiness that is a flash and then it's gone. Hardship tests our makeup. It's the third point from lessons from hardship. Hardship tests our makeup. He gives another example. He says this in verse 7, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So something is happening, right, where a, a wise person is being oppressed or, 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 or tempted. There's a bribe that is offered. The oppression and the combination of the bribe brings the crisis of what will I do with my character? What will I choose? And this is what he says. Essentially, hardship tests our character. It tests our mettle. When all of a sudden you're oppressed and you're presented with the easy way out, what will you choose? What will you choose? Life is full of hard decisions. There are those around us who are preaching messages that tell us, do big things for God. Do amazing things. And you should be fantastic at everything. And it's the will of God for you to do some huge, amazing, fantastic, incredible thing. Can I just tell you, that's bull crap. I mean, can I say that? Okay. You guys are okay with that? It just is. It just is, and, and I'll tell you why. Because there have been millions before us who haven't done amazing things. They have done faithful things their whole life long. They've done faithful things, and they stand before the judge of the whole earth, and he says, the only thing that any one of us longs to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, Enter into the joy of the Lord. So hardship brings us to the place where our character is being tested. It tests our, our, our makeup, our DNA. It tests our metal. And we have choices that we make in that moment about what we will do with the life that God has given us and with the choices that we have. Verses 8 through 12, lessons from change. Change is never easy, is it? Let's read what he says. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient spirit is better than the proud spirit. Be not 
quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the, old, were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Verses 8 through 12, lessons from change. First lesson, change keeps us focused on the prize. When he says here, better is the end of things than its beginning, and the patient in spirit better than the proud in spirit, it keeps us looking beyond the present moment, right? Change, when, when something happens, there's, there's a disruption in our lives, and, we, and all of a sudden we're, we're sort of off-center, and we thought, well, I thought that I would find happiness here, right? But then change happens, and happiness isn't found there because here is no longer there, right? Ever been through that experience? You're like, oh, I, I'm going to be so happy when I finally get married. Then you get married. <laughs> right? You're like, well, this is different than I thought. I'm going to be so happy when I land that job. Then you land the job. I'll finally be content when I have that car, and you get the car. You think, oh, you know, this next stage, this next place, that, that's where Shangri-La is. I'm finally going to find my little piece of heaven here on earth. And then it happens, and it's not that. And so what happens? And you have to readjust. You go, okay, this isn't Shangri-La. Where is it? It keeps us looking beyond the present circumstances for joy, for happiness, and pushing ahead to the things that are eternal. Change is good for us in that way. Change keeps us focused on the prize. Change reveals our character. In verse 9, he says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Okay, so you have something happens. You know, you're, um, whatever. Your, your day didn't go as planned. You had something that you were hoping to accomplish, but there were lots of interruptions, and all of a sudden, you just find yourself just, just angry. Oh, I'm so ticked off right now. Right? He says, hey, listen, don't be quick in your spirit to become angry. You know why? Because anger lodges in the bosom of who? Who? You know who gets angry? Fools. Fools are the ones that get angry. All of a sudden, I find myself angry. I'm like, God's like, ooh. Still have some foolishness in you, huh? That's coming to the surface, isn't it? It's boiling up in you. When I was young, I used to blame my anger on other things and other people, right? Oh, I, I told my wife, I'm like, I used to be so at peace before I got married. Something changed. Right? And I'm looking at her like, it's you, right? She's like, well, okay, Jeremy, I, I hear what you're saying, but did I cause the anger or did I just reveal it? <sighs> Through the heart, man, it's so true. Whatever is inside of us is forced outside of us by change by transitions, by plans that get interrupted and we get frustrated and all of a sudden we're not content with the sovereign God who rules over things. We're not content with life's interruptions and God's opportunities. We want life the way we want it. And we get angry because we're fools. Rather than embracing change and saying, God, what do you want? You've allowed this by your sovereign hand, and I trust you to redeem it. So, change reveals our character. Change gives opportunity to let go of what is temporary. He goes on to say, Say not, where were the, why were the former days better than these? 
For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. I think of the, the children of Israel as they're making their way through the desert. They just left Egypt. They're, they're there, you know, through the desert. Some hardship comes their way. They're like, we were going to the promised land. Now we're just doing brodies in the desert. Gosh! Oh, wasn't Egypt amazing? They look back, right? They go, so much better. Oh, man. I, I tell you, for me, this is one of the most convicting verses in this, this whole passage. Why? Because I look back to different seasons. I do it all the time. I find myself going, oh, I remember when I first got saved. The zeal, the passion that was there. You know, I, I just haven't felt that in a long time. What, what's going on there? Oh, it was like that when I first got married. Got replaced with something much deeper, much more stable. Something that lasts, not something that burns hot and fizzles out. Something more constant. Something that strikes at the deepest part of your being. I look back at different seasons and go, oh, wasn't it better when I did this or when I was here, when I was doing that? And man, that's such a trap. It's, it's a foolish thing to be looking back. Jesus put it this way. He says, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. Don't look back. Look ahead. Don't sit with regret and just let that stuff pull you. You know what happens when you're plowing a field and you look back? What happens to the plow? You're like, just sort of drifting through life. Hey, if you want to drift through life, that's the way to do it. Spend your days looking back. If you want to have purpose in life, you just keep your eyes fixed on what's ahead. Change keeps us focused on the prize. Change reveals our character. Change gives us opportunity to let go of what is temporary and hold on to that which is eternal. And change builds wisdom and preserves life. So he goes on to say in verse, verse 12, or excuse me, verse 11 and 12, wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Change builds wisdom and preserves our life. You think of a guy who's just walking along in life and he's just he's struggling to make ends meet and all of a sudden he gets an inheritance, right? And, and that changes his position in life. Now all of a sudden he has advantage that he, he didn't think of before. He has means that he didn't think of before. And, he, and Solomon here, he says... Uh, Hope you're wise with it. Because I'll tell you, wisdom is better than the riches you just gained. And whether you get the inheritance or you don't get the inheritance, wisdom will actually preserve your life. Riches can fade really, really quick. See, change builds wisdom in us and it preserves our life. It allows us perspective to say what things really matter, whether I am in a, a season of abundance or a season of loss. Whenever the change comes, I have, a, I have a moment where I can evaluate where I really am. I can learn from the former experience. I was that poor person who didn't have an inheritance. Now I have one. What do I do? I learned from my past experience. I don't want to be there again, right? So be wise with what I have. That's the idea. I, I, I would say this is true with, with our life in the Lord too, the inheritance that we have gained in the Lord. Man, one of the saddest things I have ever watched Somebody that I know and have loved Jesus with. There's brothers from my years in the school of ministry, from my time at one of the, the, the apex of my spiritual growth, okay? Brothers that we sat up and we prayed till like one o'clock in the morning. We would get up at three and four and worship God and have devotions. And then we would go to classes all day and study the Bible. It was like this awesome sort of little clan of 
young men that loved Jesus and followed him, and I watched them as they all went out, and so many of them have peeled away and stopped walking with the Lord. I go, God, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. Life happened. They were given an inheritance, but they never learned from the life before that inheritance. They were like, and these are brothers that I love, they were like dogs returning to vomit. What made them sick in the first place is what they went back to after God had saved them from it. And it can happen to any one of us who isn't wise and doesn't learn from major change that God does in our lives. In the few minutes that we have left, let's go through our final ones, verses 13 through 14. Lessons from letdowns. Lessons from letdowns. He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So think about this. God wants to do something, he does it. Can you fix what he does? No, you can't. Matter of fact, a lot of life is wasted trying to fix the fix that God put us in, right? All of a sudden, I'm, I'm cruising along, everything's great, and then all of a sudden, I, I, I'm in the ditch somewhere, right? And God put me there because he's doing something in me. He's revealing something to me. He wants me to stop, to come face to face with my flesh, and I'm like, okay, well, I gotta, I gotta fix this. And I'm looking at this problem as though it's something to overcome. And if I just get past this, I can be happy again or feel joy again or whatever it is that I think. <laughs> God's like, no, I, I put you there so that you might grow, sit with it for a little bit. But I wanna fix this. So if I manage to fix it, then what does he have to do? He has to put me in another ditch somewhere to still fix what has been unaddressed through the prior difficulty. You, you can't make straight what God has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, you know, you're coming up with formulas. That's essentially what you're doing. You're trying to figure God out. You're like, okay, so I want to have the life that I want, not the life that God wants. And, and so if I follow Jesus, I have devotions every day, and I come to church, and I pray a whole lot, and I'm super holy, and I only cuss a couple of times in the middle of the week in bad traffic. Okay, if I do that, then I'm, I'm on this course, right, and I'm, I'm headed this direction, and my life will be blessed, and I'll be good. But then something goes sideways. In all of your discipline, with all the stuff that you're doing, something goes sideways. And you're like, I don't understand. God, don't you work like a soda machine? I put in faithfulness and church attendance and private devotions, and you give blessings and happy life. And isn't that how that works? No, listen, there's no formula. You know why I don't want you clinging to formulas? I want you clinging to me. I want you clinging to me. See, and that's the deal. So oftentimes we're looking for some sort of way to figure God out. And God is saying, don't figure me out. Take my hand. Trust me. So many examples of that in the scriptures. Verse 15. In my vain life, I, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So now, this, this verse is really interesting. Check this out. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Well, why should you should destroy your life and be not overly wicked, neither be a fool? Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So he said, okay, I see people that are trying really hard to be righteous and their life ends up really bad. And then I see people who are trying really hard to be wicked and they end up with a really awesome life. And I'm trying to figure this out, right? Like, how does that work? Again, I'm resorting to formulas, right? If I do this, I get this. That's, that's the, the concept in my mind. How many righteous people have suffered throughout the ages? Millions of them. Right? 
doesn't guarantee the happy life. So he says, okay, just let go of that. Blow that formula up, right? This is what I want you to do. Don't be so focused on being super holy and righteous that that's all you live for is the rules. Don't be so focused on cutting yourself some slack that you're a fool and you die in the process. The person who fears the Lord and is connected to him and wants to honor him, he's the one who comes out of both of those situations and does well. So when you're let down, look to God. When you're disappointed, keep your eye on him. Verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise more than ten rulers who are in a city. That one's self-explanatory. Verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. That one makes sense to you? Yeah. Anybody here perfect? How you guys doing this week? You know, we had, a, we had just a big scream. We could put all your private thoughts up and we, we just had all that. How, how you feeling about, you know, having that as a part of the worship service, your righteousness on display for everybody else? Okay, no? No volunteers? Good, me either. <laughs> Surely there's not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. And do not take to heart the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Hey, you don't, don't take it to heart. Don't get offended when people curse you. Haven't you done the same thing? You know, just let it go. Don't let it stick to you. One of the things that they say about being a pastor is that you have to have the heart of a child, as sensitive as a child, and the, the skin of a rhinoceros. <laughs> and boy, if that is not the truth, you've got to let things just slide off you because everybody has an opinion. So he goes on to say, uh, verse 24, that which has been is far off, or excuse me, verse 23, and I have tested, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off, deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the, and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness, and that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, who pleases, um, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Last lessons in lament, in verses 13 through 14, it was lessons from letdowns. In verses 15 through 19, for those of you who are taking notes, it's lessons from injustice. Lessons from injustice. And one of the hardest lessons for us to learn in times of lament, in verses 20 through 28, lessons from relationships or lessons in depravity. If there is any one biblical doctrine that I struggle with the most, it's this. It's the sinfulness of man. Because you know what? No matter how much I know what the Bible says is true, I want to believe that people are good. I want to believe. Like, like they're, no, they're, they'll do the right thing. They won't be selfish. They won't, you know. Sorry. The Bible says otherwise. And that's the choice that we are all bent towards. And some people will say, well, that's very pessimistic. People will rise to the cage. They do. There's, there's moments of that that does happen. It absolutely is true, but you never know which time is which. Some of the hardest relationship lessons we've had to learn are times where, like he says, the servant is talking bad about you, right? And you want to hold it against somebody. Oh, you said that about me. I can't believe they said that about me. I'm so irritated and sad, upset and angry and mad. God's saying, let it go. Just let it go. I know that that's hard for you, but haven't you done the same thing to others? Does that mean that the whole of your character is absolutely skewed and messed up? Yes, it does. That's why you need the gospel. 
Yeah, so let it go. I let it go for you. Right? I dealt with it for you. Don't let it stick to you. He goes on to say, not only that, but, but also there, he's had bad experiences in intimate relationships. You know, Solomon had a few intimate relationships. He seems a little jaded at this point, doesn't he? He's like, man, I can't find a good woman anywhere. What? You went through a thousand of them. I don't know. I don't know how that works, right? He's like, they all want something from me. Yeah, you're the king of Israel. Sorry about that, buddy. Matter of fact, those very same women, the Bible tells us, led Solomon astray to where he even began to worship false deities, false gods. Did he have some bad relationship experience? Yeah, he did. He did. He says, here's what I've discovered. God made man upright, right? He gave him a chance there in the Garden of Eden. And he said, oh, here, be fruitful, multiply, let's partner. I'll be with you. We'll walk together in the cool of the day. And man has devised every evil scheme they can think of because there is not one righteous, no, not one. As Solomon wraps up this chapter, if there's any one thing that he would say it's that this world is broken. It's broken. Nobody's righteous. They're all bent and twisted. You yourself are bent and twisted. Your servant slanders you. You'll slander your servant. People will use you. Relationships will hurt you. You will trust people and they will fail you. And it's going to happen over and over and over and over again in life. What do you do with that? I only know of one thing. We entrust ourselves to a Redeemer. We say, God, in all the mess of my own sin, in all the mess of the sin of these relationships, in all of it, God, my hope is in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these lessons in lament. Thank you for these reminders of uh, the fact that, that we are supposed to embrace adversity and learn from it and grow from it. Some of the most important lessons we will ever learn, we learn from sorrow. So God, take your word, hide it in our hearts, mold us and shape us with it. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you guys. Have a good night.